Bibles, and I hope that you do join me in turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we'll consider verses 20 through 25, the final verses in our series and study of the book of Hebrews. And these, the last words of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, we find insight as to the closing concerns of the preacher. Last words are almost always important. Here, the preacher's closing remarks provide us with, with insight into what are perhaps his most pressing concerns for the church, concerns which should be shared by every member of the body. I think what we stand to be provided with in considering these final verses of Hebrews is something of a framework from which we may pray for the needs of the church and for our needs individually. I want to challenge you as we begin to consider these verses together that you would pray through these verses as various concerns come to mind in our reading and our exposition of these verses. Pray where you are and ask that God would move in these ways. In fact, our approach to the passage is to ask of the text how it is that we might pray even as the preacher models prayer for the church in verses 20 through 25. There are, in virtually every New Testament letter, examples of writers explaining or describing their prayers for the church. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, praying for you always with joy and with thanksgiving. And there's a number of verses there given to describing or detailing the request Paul makes in light of the concerns and needs in the church at Philippi. But in the back end of many New Testament letters, in the closing remarks, there are often examples, not of the, the preacher or the person describing their prayer life, but of their actual prayer for the church. Most of verses 20 through 25 represents an actual prayer for the well-being of these Hebrew congregants. So we seek to learn from the example the preacher establishes for us. Here in these verses, if you found your way to Hebrews 13 and verse 20, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. The inspired word of God says, beginning in verse number 20, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he'll be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy greet you. Grace be with all of you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. If verses 20 and following represent the prayer of the preacher for the congregation, and I believe they do, verse 20 represents a celebration, a, a beginning of prayer with a celebration of who God is and all that he's done on our behalf. Jesus instructs us similarly to pray. He began the model prayer. 
Our Father who are in heaven, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He begins with a note of worship, and so too the preacher begins in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He makes note here of the power of God, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus. Our Father who had the power to raise the cold and stiffened and lifeless body of Jesus from the grave that would shake the earth such that the stone would be rolled away. He who has such power surely has the power to meet the very needs we bring before him in prayer. This tone of celebration, this remembrance of God's power and movement in time past on behalf of the church is the assurance that God would be pleased in the future to move on behalf of the church for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. This description of Jesus reminds us of the mercies of our God. It is that God not only has the power to meet our needs in prayer, it is furthermore that God has the mercy to do so. If he merely had the power, but were in some way disconnected, unconcerned with the needs of his people, our prayers might from time to time find an answer by the power of God. But it's It's not that God holds the power without the willingness. It is that he is great in his mercy. The preacher is reminding himself as he rehearses in prayer of the power and the mercy of God to meet our every need, the power to do it and the mercy to do it. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, is tender and he's kind toward his people. When the sheep wonders when sheep do what sheep do the shepherd doesn't say to himself these dumb sheep he just attends to the needs it's part and parcel of what it means to be the great shepherd and the scripture would indicate that he delights to do so when there's an injury or illness within the sheepfold he attends to the need of his sheep When there's need for provision, when there's absence of grass and water that would provide for the needs of the sheepfold, he leads them to still waters and green pastures in his mercy and his grace. He attends to the every need of the sheepfold. He has the power to meet those needs and mercy that matches it. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that God has promised to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? It is good that we begin to pray by rehearsing the goodness of God toward us. I wonder wonder this week and I wonder this morning, even as I preach, what your prayer lives are like. For some of you, it may be that they've grown cold, disconnected, maybe just mundane, One of the ways that you can really ignite fire and passion in prayer is by taking a moment at the beginning of your time of prayer to remember the power and the glory and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of our God. By just rehearsing in your mind the countless ways God has shown his power and grace in your life. 
how he used the circumstances of your pre-conversion life to condition your heart and to prepare you for that pivotal moment in your life when he would throw open your heart and grant the gift of faith and salvation. To remember every moment since as God has been persevering with you, working out his plan, his will, his pleasure in your life. Think of his power. Sometimes even creation itself can be provoking when it comes to prayer and to worship. To look about, to see the sun, moon, and stars as they are so far beyond our reach. To see the beauty of creation around us, even observing the complexity of the human body. So much of its complexity beyond our understanding, even with all of our advancements in technology and insight. He is the creator of all things. He holds that measure of power and has taken interest in our measly lives. That in and of itself ought to create enthusiasm about the idea of enjoying communion and fellowship with the God of heaven. Preacher begins here by rehearsing the goodness and the power of God. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant. We've, we've not yet concluded the thought or the sentence, but are stopped again by this reminder of God's grace toward us. A reminder that plays on the insight provided within the book of Hebrews. Where the preacher teaches us that what we've received in Jesus is the guarantee. It is, it is the sealing, the setting forth of a better covenant. The covenant that Jesus has, has established with us is an everlasting covenant that exceeds the old covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, God sealed himself to the people with a promise. They likewise, in turn, had set forth for them certain obligations. The covenant that God made with Israel was his guarantee to them. Built into that covenant was his expectation for Israel. And what you observe in all of the Old Testament is the inability of Israel to maintain the expectations of the covenant. And so under the new covenant, God has met not only what mankind might anticipate or expect of him, but God has, through his Son, met the obligations of the covenant for us. Such that the covenant is not conditioned upon our works, our contribution, our obligations, what we set forth. The covenant is forever sealed and delivered by the finished work of Jesus. It is an everlasting covenant. We're reminded again and again in this rehearsal of God's greatness and grace toward us of all that Jesus has done for us. Aren't your hearts bursting with enthusiasm at the want and ability of God to meet your every need? May the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. There are essentially two requests that are set forth in verse 21. Verse 20 is just a rehearsal of God's goodness toward us, but the substance of the prayer itself, the actual petitions that are made here in this brief prayer, are, are begun at least to be set forth in verse 
21. The preacher teaches us here to pray that God would equip us with all that we need to do God's will. Are, are you familiar with this practice of praying through the scripture? I find it to be helpful in so many ways. One, it alleviates my spiritual ADD, my attention deficit disorder when it comes to spiritual things. Satan has this incredible way of distracting and drawing us away when it comes to the business of, of prayer. And it doesn't take long before our minds begin to wander to other worldly concerns. But in praying through the scriptures in this way, we're simply praying for what we're prompted to pray for as we read through a given passage. That's one benefit of praying through the scripture. In this case, praying through an actual prayer. But there's a second benefit that I want you to understand, especially as it relates to this initial request. He's asking here that God would equip us with all we need to do his will. As you pray that, you understand that it is God's will, it is God's desire to equip you with all you need to do his will. The second and most outstanding benefit to praying through the scripture is that it provides for us some guardrails and guarantees that we're praying within the plan of God for us. If you ask, brothers and sisters, that God would equip you with all you need to do his will, there is the guarantee that he will answer in the affirmative. There are times when we pray about what I call gray area issues, where it may not be crystal clear what the next steps should look like for us, and we're just sort of fishing for some biblical principles to help us to know how to take the next steps, what would be wise for us in a particular scenario. But then there are those areas of life where God makes his will crystal clear for us. And if we bring that before him as an express need from his sheep, the people of, of his church, he is glad to meet that need. If you ask that God would grant you the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the resources, and the opportunities to do his will, I'll guarantee you God will provide for that need. If you pray now, if you pray right now in this moment, God open an opportunity to me to be able to share the gospel. If I weren't a Baptist preacher, I would bet you money that before the sun sets on this day, God will be glad to grant that prayer. Pray here with some confidence. God, equip us with all we need to do what you've called upon us to do. Typically, our requests brought before God are material or more self-directed. And there's certainly nothing wrong with praying that way. Jesus instructed us that we should pray that God would provide our daily bread. Our every need is met by God. I, I don't care what your level of comfort or affluence or what your bank account says. We are living as the people of God from his hand to our mouth. His provision is the guarantee of our need met. But the focus of this particular request is ministerial. It is that the preacher is asking that they would have available to them all the resources they need to do the will of God with regards to ministry and growth personally in Christ. God, give us what we need to be able to do what you have assigned to us, the building up of the church and the advancement of your kingdom. God is pleased to answer such a request. There's a second request at least implied in verse 21. 
Again, beginning in verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus. You understand, don't you, that any worthwhile contribution we might make to the kingdom is entirely dependent on the work of God's Spirit in us. The preacher is teaching us here to pray, God, help us to do what is pleasing to you. With regards to righteousness, help us to do what you have assigned to us, what you have called us to do. God, we are entirely reliant upon your work in us. Help us to be pleasers of God in all of our ways. I've been reading the follow-up volume to that gentle and lowly work that we distributed hundreds of copies of several weeks ago here within the body. This particular book takes up the topic of sanctification. How it is that we grow deeper in Christ or in the language of verse 21, how we can do what is pleasing to God. And the author sort of assesses the misconceptions that come with growth and grace, doing what is pleasing to the Lord. He, he provides some examples of misunderstandings of how it is that we can do what is pleasing to God. One misunderstanding he refers to as the God and us understanding of doing what pleases God. In, in this system, in this way of thinking, God saves us, and then from that point forward, it's about us and God working together to do what pleases him. In that system, we grow in grace as we work with God, shaping and changing our life by various acts of discipline and, and sort of bringing ourselves by sheer effort into conformity with, with his will. Sure, God is helping by his spirit, but we share in that responsibility to see us grow. A second misunderstanding is the God-then-us theory. God saves us in the beginning. We are saved by grace and not by faith. It is that God has opened our heart and granted the gift of faith. It is not of works lest any man should boast. But in this understanding, from that moment forward, it becomes our responsibility to exercise ourselves, to discipline ourselves, that we then add to what God has done in times past. God saves us. And then the sanctifying work is the responsibility of his Brothers and sisters, our ability to do what is pleasing to God is not about God and us. It's not about God then us. It's about God in us. Here, the preacher is praying, God, empower us, enable us by your abiding presence in our heart as we abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us. Empower and enable. We are entirely reliant on the work of God in us. Help us to do something with our lives that make an eternal difference. We, we talk, I was talking with one of our members last week after the message about the difficulty of precision in language when we talk about the gospel. We were talking specifically about the phrase I used last week where I spoke of the obligations of the gospel. That can be misleading. Misleading is certainly not the intent, but precision is so challenging. It, it's, it's really on some level not about obligations. There are the implications of the gospel, what the gospel 
uh, leads us to, compels us to in life. But the gospel is not about us taking action steps to win the favor of God. The gospel is about surrendering to his lordship over our life. It's a passive act as we receive the message of the gospel, not an active one. Any action that's taken after the reception of the gospel is the product of the gospel's work in us. But we are in no way meriting the favor of God by taking these action steps. We want for that. We're inclined toward that as mankind. We want to believe that we can do something that will earn or merit the favor of God. But we, we can only surrender. We receive the message of the gospel passively. We subject ourselves to his lordship and authority over all our life. Plead with him this morning. God, help me to do what is pleasing in your sight. Some of you, no doubt, are at a place of frustration. There is sin that easily entangles you. And you've done everything in your power to overcome it. You have wrestled against it. You have self-helped your way into a deeper mess than you were in the beginning. And listen, I get that assistance and accountability and steps and all of those things can be beneficial. But until you have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus over all of your life, no action items, list, or steps are going to be beneficial to you. God, help us to do what is pleasing in your sight. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in him through Jesus. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. There is this interruption of prayer for a second opportunity to worship Jesus. That's a good way to pray. As he makes these requests known, as you make your request known to God in prayer, you can't help but be reminded of his goodness and ability to see these needs through. All of this is to happen through Christ. This is not the product of our effort. And we're reminded here again by the preacher that glory belongs to him forever and ever and amen. As you pray, worship, worship. Make much of Jesus as you're reminded of his power and goodness and grace toward you. Celebrate that in prayer. Celebrate that. And, and it, it, it causes enthusiasm and zeal and excitement to burst forth from our heart at all that he's done on our behalf. God has intervened in human history. Jesus, the creator of the world, has taken notice of you. He is at work and active in your life. Jesus has an interest in your well-being. Verse 22, the preacher sets forth a third prayer or exhortation to prayer, even as the prayer sort of ends with an amen in verse 21. There is still further encouragement as to how we might pray. And this particular request in verse 22 resonates strongly with me as a preacher. He says, brothers, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Apparently, there is this characteristic trait shared by pastors, preachers, of every generation for the duration of the history of the church. He just wrote 13 chapters, 
And he says, by the way, I've written to you briefly. This is kind of like where the preacher says at the end of the hour-long sermon, there's so much more I'd like to say. And indeed, there is. The request here is, is one that I think every faithful preacher feels, wants to make at some point along the way. And, and I express it in a variety of different ways. He says, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. Hear the word of God well. It comes off from me with things like lean in, listen carefully. Are you tracking? Because I, I really want to make sure, I really want to guarantee that you are hearing well what God's word says in this particular moment. Far too often we sit under the preaching of the gospel, unaffected, unfazed, unchanged by that experience. Woe unto us if we fail to heed what we have available to us in the hearing, the reading, the preaching, and the study of God's word. I've caught myself saying, and I've tried to self-correct in the past couple of years, but I'm convinced that this is probably a shared experience. I have said often of my own conversion that I was almost 20 years old before I ever heard the gospel. I've heard that in so many testimonies that I've, I've come to a different conclusion. I suspect that there were perhaps dozens, maybe more, times when individuals, preachers, friends, family, shared with me the message of the gospel, but I just did not have eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to discern. How often have you heard that in a testimony of the saving power of Jesus? Maybe it is that we are that derelict in our responsibility to share the message of the gospel, but I, I tend to think there's a lot of contribution to that conclusion that comes from us and our inability to hear well the message. Listen, woe unto us. And the only hope, the only hope for hearing the message well is that the scales would fall from our eyes, that God would give us ears to hear and quickened hearts that we might discern the truthfulness of the message, that we might remember the message at all, that that moment would be memorable for us, that in due time God would use that seed of the gospel to spring forth into everlasting life. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And so we must pray that God would work and move in that way. God, help us to hear your word well. Even as we gather, listen, those constant exhortations to hear well God's word come from a place of my understanding that Sunday by Sunday in every service we host, there are those who are sitting under the preaching of God's word, a word specific to their circumstance, but a word that will not be heard well or received at all. In the Western church, we have so much access. We have physical Bibles in our hands, most of us. And for those that don't, there's a smart device, some kind of electronic device that gives them access to the Bible in every translation and a variety of different languages. Even original texts can be accessed by those who have the right app on their smart device. We, we, we have libraries of commentaries that provide insight into the teaching of God's Word. We've so much access to so much information when it comes to God's Word. 
Yet there are churches huddled in corners of the word with mere pages of the Bible for lack of access. Woe unto us when we hear not the word of God well. Pray, brothers and sisters, that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to discern, to be changed, to be shaped by the message of God's word. God, help us to hear your word well. Verse 23 is sort of some closing remarks where some sort of niceties are exchanged between the author and his congregants. Personal individuals are mentioned here and greetings are passed. The kind of passage that we might read over. And I'll grant that the prayer part of our passage is likely concluded in the mind of the preacher and perhaps in your mind as well. But there is further encouragement and direction, insight for us as to how we might pray for the body and pray for ourselves. Look to verse 23. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he'll be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who are from Italy greet you. Grace be with all of you. A couple of things within the pleasantries that are exchanged in these few verses. The preacher makes mention of Timothy here in our passage. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released, and if he comes soon enough, he'll be with me when I see you. I know that I've mentioned this in the past in our study in the book of Hebrews and didn't spend a lot of time there for fear of creating concern or emphasis where emphasis ought not be, but I believe that Luke, the physician, the missionary partner of the Apostle Paul, is the author of the book of Hebrews. Here reference is made to Timothy. There's, there seems to be a tenderness, a sweetness of fellowship enjoyed within the early church that often escapes local bodies in the 21st century setting. Think about the composition of this group, if my assessment is correct. You have the Apostle Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a staunch Jew by birth, by background, by experience, who is born again by the power of the gospel. And then you have Luke, the only Gentile author in the New Testament. And those two begin a friendship that has lasting power. Such that at the end of Paul's life and ministry imprisoned and on the brink of death by execution, he would say, only Luke is with me. Jew and Gentile partner together in the gospel. Luke and Paul, in all likelihood, of the same generation. Paul's younger protege is the Timothy mentioned here, presumably imprisoned but now released on his way back to Luke in the hopes of joining him as he meets together with the Hebrew congregation the preacher writes to here. I doubt that there was the kind of generational distance that exists between generations in our day, but you can rest assured there was some degree of distance that would have existed generationally between Paul and Luke, this Jewish and Gentile partnership, and the younger protege, Timothy, who was this younger whippersnapper protege of a preacher often encouraged by the Apostle Paul. Verse 24, the preacher says, greet all, all your leaders. And all the saints, those who are from Italy, greet you. From Italy, greet you. Now, we don't know the precise location of this Hebrew congregation, but here's what I know for certain. 
there were at minimum hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles of distance between those in Italy and this Hebrew congregation. And yet there is this spirit of fellowship, of communion, of kinship that exists between them. It is a powerful thing that ought to be experienced and celebrated within the body. One of the many byproducts and benefits of participating in international missions or doing missions in a cross-cultural context is that it provides you with the opportunity to experience this kind of kinship, even with those you've only just met, to find that this person who lives on the other end of the earth, who doesn't even know your favorite sports team, who's never been to Walmart, shares in common with you this deep and abiding passion for Jesus. There's this instant fraternity that exists, this strength of fellowship between you by the power of the gospel. I've never been able to understand this idea of attending worship service services begrudgingly. Among, among the many other things that ought to motivate or compel us to gather together is the reunion that takes place between the people of God when we gather here to worship him in spirit and in truth. Some morning, just sneak out and watch the lobby between services and watch people come and go, people who love one another, people who are concerned for one another, people who have perhaps missed others in their absence due to illness or the passing of a loved one or just distance, and watch the reunion that unfolds. It's a beautiful thing, and it's necessary to our growth in grace. It's what God intends the church to be. Pray that God would foster that sense of kinship, that sense of connectedness. Pray that God would help us draw near to one another as the family of God. That's what he intends we would be. I was encouraged by a member of our body between services just prior to this service. They, they followed my exhortation to involve themselves in connect group ministry and they were celebrating the way they had been encouraged and their hearts had been warmed by that fellowship. You need that in your life. It's here in the book of Hebrews that the preacher warns us that we ought not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, for in that setting love and good works are stirred within our heart. This ought to be for us our place of refuge safe place for us, not the building, the body, people to whom we can run to escape a crazy, crooked, and perverse world around us and to find fellowship with like-minded believers who love Jesus with all their heart, who provide for us a safe opportunity for us to be open and honest about Christ abiding in us and our abiding in him, who might encourage us as we seek to persevere in the advancement of the gospel. That's what the church ought to provide, the body ought to provide for us. God, help us to draw near to one another as the family of God. There is, again, a tone of urgency in what the preacher says here. I'd call your attention back to verse 22, where the preacher says, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. Remember the substance of the message of exhortation. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. 
Persevere in the faith, those of you who are on the cusp of a faith commitment, who have put hand to plow but are tempted to look back. Take caution, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a word of warning there. And everything we're encouraged to pray, all of the fruits and benefits of a healthy, wholesome prayer life predicated on the idea of our being joined together with Jesus by faith. Our great high priest who prays for us, who is sealed by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but by his blood and everlasting covenant. Come to him. Come to him. I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. Hasten to Jesus. Surrender. Make yourself subjects to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This is our hope. We're going to pray and we're going to go into a time of invitation. And my challenge to you is to pray the very petitions, the very request the preacher has prayed for the body. Ask that God would work and move in these ways. That God would equip you with all you need to do his will. That God would help you to do what is pleasing to him. That God would help us to hear his word well. That God would help us to draw near to one another as we draw near to him, the family of God. And watch and count in the days to come the many ways God works and moves that his good pleasure be done your life with a daring spirit dangerously pray that his will be done in you even as it is in heaven let's go to him in prayer father we ask for just these things that you would work and move in our lives in just these ways God, we ask that you would have preeminence in our life, Lord, that you would help us to do what is pleasing to you, that your will would be done in us and not our own, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word well. We pray that you would help us as we labor to be brought near to God, to be drawn ever closer one another as the family of God, as the people of God, with an abiding and undying love and devotion one to another. Jesus said of the church, you will love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. May it be so of us. We ask these things in the power of Christ's name. Amen.